Hello, I'm radio professional Warren Levinson. You may remember me from my work on such headline stories as so-called cannibal cop convicted and UN Security Council declares Srebrenica safe zone. Whenever I talk dirty, I could get in trouble with the FCC. However, the hosts of Unorthodox are under no such sanction. So while I never curse into an open microphone, they might. And you might want to send the little ones out of the room for the duration. This has been your obscenity warning. You guys should know, if we ever do a circumcision episode, how many awkward emails I have had to send people like, so, your husband, his penis, let's talk. <laughs> Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by tablet senior writer, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom. Shalom. And Stephanie Butnick, our deputy editor, is out on the slopes, but she is calling in for the beginning of the show. Hello, Stephanie. Hi. Are you on the slopes right now? I'm not on the slopes right now, but I may be at some point. You're in pre-apres-ski right now. Yeah, I'm more about like that apres-life. Yeah. She's avant-ski. Um, we have uh, two Jews of the week. I'm technically also avant-ski. <laughs> Having never a- skied in my life, <laughs> I'm just avanting here. I'm, uh, I'm in a skiing interregnum. I skied when I was a teenager, and I will ski again in retirement. I'm sorry. Jews don't ski. Just I, don't I don't care what either of you say. That's know, not something we do. I happen. We'll, yep. we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. I kind of agree. But actually, it's the first activity Jews take up when they want to show that you know, they've made it. Is and then they get those photos at the top of the mountain that they then put on their uh, credenza. Guys, I, I'm I'm out of this game. I don't play this game anymore. You don't play this game. You're because we're going to hear from like a thousand Jews who ski all the time, and I grew up skiing. Oh, call, did oh, did you? you want. All right. To me, the only reason to do it is if you have to escape over the Alps right. into like Spain because <laughs> the Nazis are chasing you. Sure, ski all you want. Any other reason? No. Well, that's cross-country skiing. That's right. Do the Alps go into Spain? I don't think the Alps go into Spain. You know, whatever whatever Walter Benjamin did to try and escape over the Pyrenees. Gestapo over the Pyrenees. All right. Our Jew of the Week is Jeffrey Masters, the host of the podcast LGBTQ&A, a podcast on which he documents the stories of LGBTQ folks. And our other Jew of the Week is Anne Edelstein, who is the author of a remarkable new memoir, Life-Saving for Beginners. I'm going to give you a teaser and say that um, four members of her family die in this book. <laughs> it's 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 grim. And that's, and that's no spoiler alert. It happens in the first It happens in like, the first yeah. two pages. But it's grim, but it's also beautiful. Um, so because we only have Stephanie for a brief moment before she's swept off in a uh, in an avalanche, um, what is what is up, Jews? Stephanie, what are you doing out there? So I'm with the Coens. The Coens are a skiing family. So I've officially married into a skiing family, which I'm like trying to get used to. Uh huh. Uh huh. I, I grew up skiing. I like it. But it's, they it's, really it's do. It's a lot of gear. It's a. L- I it's mean, amazing here. I love it, and and it's we're you know we're in Beaver Creek. So here's the thing. I'll just I'll just pause on this for a moment. I did like skiing as a teenager, but I also do remember. It's like you got up at four in the morning. You had enormous amounts of gear. You were always cold. The, the excitement, yes, the runs were exciting, but it's like 20 minutes in between runs. It's 20 minutes of ski lift and waiting in line for a five-minute or 10-minute run. It seems to me, based on my memory, that the fun was really, at the end of a long day, feeling that sort of pleasurable soreness and having a hot chocolate at the lodge. Like, do people really enjoy the day out on the slopes? Let's be honest yeah. here. Really? Yeah. Really? I, yeah, I mean, it's fun. Like, when you're up there, and yeah, I get, I get it. You have to, like, take a bunch of ski lifts. But when you're up there, and it's really, it is fun. Um, I think I have like a little too much anxiety to ski, but I, I'm by like day two, I'm fine. So if and when you have children, will you be like, they're four. If they don't get on skis now, they'll never really be good. Um, I don't know. 
You haven't thought that far ahead. I know I haven't, but I'm glad you have. <laughs> well, I I have many friends who uh, I, I I run with ski folk, and I, one of the things among skiers is a lot of them. It, a lot of them feel it's like swimming, which is you got to get them out. Yep. Early. Another thing we're not meant to do. <laughs> we're meant to walk. At a comfortable pace, (laughs) wearing sensible shoes. Of course, that's it. Sid's refrain is, I don't know how she feels about skiing, but of course her refrain is, Jews don't camp. That's where she draws the line, is camping. Oh, there there I You guys are selling us way short. We can do anything we want now. It's 2018. (laughs) We can do whatever anyone else does. Whatever the Gentiles do. We can name our kids Christine. Mm -hmm. We could fellowship. We could do... (laughs) The Allie Raisman, that gymnastics. All right, let's get right to the news of the Jews. There's a new kosher truck at Facebook, uh, the Facebook campus has inaugurated its first kosher restaurant at its Silicon Valley headquarters. It's dubbed Kosher Truck. <laughs> creatively dubbed Kosher Truck. These people truck. are so good at, at, at labels. Uh, they provide <laughs> kosher Middle Eastern fare to the campus's Jewish and Jew-curious and kosher cuisine-curious employees. Um, there are 11 other eateries scattered around the campus, apparently. So this is And number, because this is 12. Facebook, the Kosher Truck follows you around. <laughs> Right. And knows your name, knows yes. your order. And knows your order. It just it arrives without you even and letting like, it in. We have a side that we think you might like. <laughs> Uh, Paul Nalen, who is running for Congress in Wisconsin against Paul Ryan again, he lost very badly in the Republican primary two years ago, uh, has found the culprit. Is it us? It's us. Oh. It's the Jews. It's what us. What do we do? It's the Jew okay. media in a private Twitter direct message. There's a, a paradox, a, a an oxymoron, private Twitter direct message to uh, his his message group. He said that his critics are, quote, working for the Jewish media. And he referred to, quote, fake conservatives who happen to be Jewish. And then he said, I'm going to decimate them all. <laughs> so uh, Steve Bannon and Breitbart, who supported Nalen in his 2016 run, uh, have now said they don't support him anymore. So he's so crazy. Like he's lost Bannon and Breitbart. He outbannoned Bannon. He out- Bannon's like, whoa, whoa, dude. <laughs> okay. This, the best part of this story is that it confirms whoever's theory it is that like, People who hate Jews know so much more about Jews than Jews do. He says, there are a list of goys attacking me and a separate list of Jews. And I'm like, what? Why would you say that? <laughs> There's a minion out there. <laughs> it's only a matter of, it's like a month from now we'd find out that his mother is Jewish. Of course. His ex-wife is Jewish. And that in fact. He's, he, a, he's a treasurer of his, of his Hadassah you know, chapter. He, was, he, he went, he did two years at Yeshiva Flatbush, and then he was an A.E. Pi at the University of Maryland. I mean, that's that's basically where this is going. Uh, but speaking of Jews who are not as in the fold, Missouri Governor Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL, Republican, married to a Presbyterian, all the boxes checked, has been brought low because apparently he's had an affair with a woman who is now accusing him of having threatened to blackmail her by releasing sassy nudie pics. So... The great, this guy actually was the great Jewish hope for the presidency now that, you know, it, it was either Bernie Sanders or Eric Greitens. This guy was going to run. And uh, that, that bright young star. That bright, I mean, you know, Jew Navy SEAL. That's, there's, there's the, <laughs> there it is, right? Because he has the Jew media and he'll get the, the veteran military vote. But not to be outdone by the weak, effeminate Jews in the diaspora, Yair Netanyahu, son of the prime minister, grandson of the great historian, right? Indeed. Um, Proving the old adage, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, was caught. Well, Liel, you, 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 because you've been following the story. A, in, a, a roving uh, sexual misbehavior correspondent. Well, you, you've been following uh, the story, but Ivry. So, I mean, Yair Netanyahu was recorded uh, clandestinely by his security is there, detail. Is there any other way? Uh, right. <laughs> except for not 
it shouldn't really happen by your security <laughs> detail that is paid for by the government to protect you because you're a prime minister's son. This is like really actually troubling. That's a whole different story. But what the news is, uh, and this is all Israelis have been talking about for a week, is that Yair Netanyahu really appears to be the biggest douchebag on the planet <laughs> because the recording is him outside a strip club with, I mean, talk about a douche canoe. He's outside a strip club with like two of his friends and the whole conversation, which if you speak Hebrew, you really should listen to, is like, yo, bro, can you give me 400 shekels for this whore? Because my dad made your dad rich, bro. It's like, it's almost like theater to watch and it's kind of amazing. And I, I feel really, really bad. It's not often that you could say I feel really bad for Benjamin Netanyahu, but I feel really bad for Benjamin Netanyahu because if this was my kid, I'd be like, uh, yeah, I'm sending him to like military school, back to the army for seven more years. Here's my question. In the English translation I keep reading, he's all like, yo, bro, give me some shekels because my dad scored your dad a sweet hookup deal in the Knesset, bro. Yeah. Let's get some horse, bro. Yeah. What, what, is, what, is, what is the Hebrew that's getting translated to? Achi. Achi. Yeah. Achi, which is... Which What's my, my brother? brother? My yeah. brother. But mm-hmm. that does it have that sort of oh yeah broy vibe? Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. Can you, Leo, can you just like in Hebrew tell us like what this would sound like hearing it? <laughs> let's let's play the tape. Here we go. You just press play on this thing. Oh, we do. Okay, Merck. Yeah. Okay. Never let it be said we don't serve our Israeli That's listeners right. as well. And I will uh, trans translate. <laughs> They are now talking about a takeaway, my brother. They will have sushi, my brother. (laughs) They are hookers, my brother. Oh, they tricked you, these hookers, my brother. Here, amazingly, the three gentlemen of Verona are talking about, do you know what it would sound like if anyone recorded this conversation? <laughs> well, uh, geniuses, yes, we do, because we're listening to you two years later. <laughs> I have just spent 400 shekels on this hooker. Oh, I spent 3,000 shekels today. 3,000 shekels on what? Well, 300 in the bar. 400 I lent to Yair. This is like the worst Talmud page ever. It was not for the hooker. No, he just wanted to show his friend that he could spend a lot of money to have more honor and respect. And now Yair says, but if you'd like, I could hook you up with my ex-girlfriend. I could hook everyone up with my ex-girlfriend. No, I do not want your ex-girlfriend. I want this hooker. <laughs> you know, you don't even have to know Hebrew. No, and Hebrew <laughs> is how depraved these Hebrew idiots is are. A beautiful language. <laughs> now, now his friend said, "Achi, half of my phone is just strippers." <laughs> oh my god, this is amazing. This has been masterpiece theater. You, you know that what's what's the, the 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 British show that everyone loves, The Crown? The crowd. <laughs> this is the Israeli version. The <laughs> anti-Semites out there, keep in mind, keep in mind that if you believe the Jews have a worldwide conspiracy to control everything, this is the son of the man who is the most powerful Jew in the world. What you're saying is He's it. To he, name another great TV show, th- this is us. This is, this is us, baby. Yeah, like he, they literally Come don't on. even coordinate for like a, a strip club payment. My lord.
So, since that's since the only thing that would top that is an actual interview with Kayla Moore's Jew lawyer. <laughs> if you've been following this story, as we discussed last week, remember Kayla Moore, the wife of vanquished Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, uh, said that she obviously her husband couldn't be an anti-Semite because one of their lawyers is a Jew and they have fellowshiped with Jews. And it it has recently been revealed who that. Jew was. And, and his, his name is? His name is Martin Wisnotsky. <laughs> and um, he is a, a Jew who is, is a Messianic Jew. He believes, although he has a Jewish heritage, he believes in the divinity uh, and, and salvific character of Jesus Christ. And he was willing to talk to me. So here are some excerpts from the interview I did uh, a few days ago with Kayla Moore's Jew, Martin Wisnotsky. Mark, you are literally doing God's work. I'm... <laughs> Kayla Moore, uh, wife of Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, was referring to and to defend her husband against charges of anti-Semitism. She said, one of our lawyers is a Jew. Now, is that you, Martin? I, I think that's uh, that's correct. Yes. And and I had no idea the uh, intense interest uh, that, that, that people would take in that comment. All right. So let's back up a second. First of all, tell us um, a little bit about yourself and... Um, you know, how you how you came to know the Moors. Yeah, I went to Liberty University School of Law in Lynchburg, Virginia. And as you know, that's a, that's a Christian uh-huh. law school. One of my professors was Jeff Tamala. When Chief Justice Moore was in his first term on the Alabama Supreme Court, Professor Tamala was teaching at Jones School of Law, which is in Montgomery, and they got to know each other. So when he was reelected in 2012, he called Professor Tamala to see if he had any suggestions for staff people. As it turned out, I had graduated in May of 2012. And a month later, I got an email from Professor Tamala asking if I'd be interested in a position as a staff attorney on the Alabama Supreme Court. And so that's how you first met then Chief Justice Moore. That's right. Yeah, I came down to Alabama and uh, we interviewed now, obviously, you have a, a long history, and I want to get into that. But first of all, let's establish this. You know, Kayla Moore went on on TV and, and radio and went in front of a press conference and said, you know, one of our lawyers is a Jew, and we have rabbi friends as well, and we fellowship with them. So, and then there was intense speculation in the Jewish media: who is this Jewish lawyer? Initially, it thought it was a, a different a different gentleman. Um, if it was in fact you, uh, let's just get it out in the open: are, are you Jewish? I am. Yes. Parents are Jewish. Jewish on both sides. Grandparents as well. Yes, going back to Eastern Europe. All right. Um, but you now also are a Christian, yes? Absolutely. All right. So tell me a little bit about that journey. How were you brought up? As What was your Jewish upbringing like? And then how did you become a Christian? Well, we were very consciously Jewish, but that was not connected to a belief in God. But all my friends and obviously all my relations uh, were all Jewish. And the last thing we would ever do would be to go into a Christian church or a Catholic Church that was uh, contrary to our identity. Uh, I started Hebrew school when I was eight years old and went to Hebrew school for five years and then was bar mitzvahed when I was uh, 13. I had read a book about the Bible when I was about 10 years old, and, and Hebrew school gave me a little feeling for God, but it really didn't play any role in my life at all. And once I went away to Andover and then to Harvard, the nature of the curriculum erased whatever lingering sense of faith I might have had because uh, we learned that uh, Moses was a political leader who used religion 
uh, in order to uh, get the people to obey him. And uh, religion was for people of, uh, that really couldn't think for themselves. Uh, uh, they needed somebody to figure out life for them and tell them mm-hmm. what to do. But at Harvard, we were much smarter than that. And uh, you know, these, these are ancient myths that nobody took seriously anymore. And I, I pretty much, you know, I adopted that. I had no reason to question what I was taught because I had no alternative basis of belief uh, on which to challenge it. So I had an experience. I was 33 years old and someone uh, prayed for me. It was a gypsy woman out in the state of Hawaii. She was plying her trade, looking for tourists that she could uh, get money from by telling them their fortune. But as it turns out, she uh, also was a believer in Jesus. And uh, she sat me down and she prayed for me and she said, Jesus, take away his sins. And that was uh, God's moment. I had uh, a conviction and also a a hypothesis. Uh, And as an academic, I went out to find the book that could explain it, got, got a Bible. And I opened the pages and I heard the voice of God. I recognized it. It had been buried under my education uh, for a couple decades, but I could, I, could, I could recognize that voice of righteousness. And at that point, I wanted to know who it was. It took a while, about seven years. I finally became established as a Christian. So a gypsy fortune teller in Hawaii, who was also, as it happened, a believing Christian, prayed with you. And that sent you to find the New Testament, and that sent you on a path of about seven years to finding yourself as a as a Christian. Roughly, that's correct. And what kind of church do you attend now? What kind of Christian? How do you identify? I'd say an evangelical Protestant. No, I'm I'm not Catholic, and I'm somewhat Pentecostal as well. So you know, the Moors are. um, I think they would identify as fundamentalist Christians. uh, Certainly evangelical, possibly fundamentalist. Um, When Kayla invokes you as a Jewish friend of hers, um, a lot of Jews recoil when they find out that you're in fact a, a Christian because they feel there's a kind of slipperiness when uh, conservative Christians talk about uh, ethnically Jewish people as um, who are now Christian as Jews. In other words, they don't like Jews for Jesus or Messianic Jews mm-hmm. identifying as Jews because they feel that they rejected that identity and have uh, and are now more identified with the Christian community. Do you? How do you feel about that charge, that there's something slippery or dishonest about her putting you forward as a Jewish friend? Well, I am Jewish, so there's nothing uh, dishonest about that. I'm a Jewish Christian, and I'm not the only one. And there are other Jewish atheists. Are they not Jewish? Well, they have, they, they don't, they reject the Bible completely, including Moses. Does that, well, does that mean? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, according to to theological Judaism, anyone who is ancestrally Jewish, either on the mother's side or some Jews would say on either side, um, is Jewish. I think I think the difference is, of course, that Christianity comes along as a supersessionist movement and says that in some cases it supplants or corrects Judaism. Uh, so it's seen as a particular kind of rejection. And of course, historically also, um, you know, while atheism has, has eroded Jewish community, they aren't specifically evangelizing and pulling people away from Jewish synagogues in the way that some evangelical Christian communities are organizing to do that right now. Well, people, people are entitled to uh, spread their beliefs to others. If, and in fact, you know, Jesus was Jewish. The Old Testament is, of course, completely Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. 
Paul, uh, the writer of the epistles, was Jewish. How much more of a Jewish book do you want? I'm Jewish and I'm a Christian, so I happen to be a hybrid, and that's the way it is. Okay. <laughs> so I guess final question, what are, what are the Moors like? What are Kale and Roy like? Well, people. He takes his, he takes his faith uh, very seriously, lives according to it. And I've, I've always found him to be a gentleman and also uh, a very good student of the law. So it was, it was a pleasure to work with him and with the rest, rest of the staff there. Do you think that Roy Moore did anything wrong with any of those teenage girls? The, uh, the charges of criminal acts, I don't believe. They're not credible to me. And whether uh, he dated uh, women who were in their late teens when he was about 30 years old, uh, I don't think that's, uh, that's, that's an issue. Let's put a finer point on it. I mean, does it concern you ethically? If you knew someone who was 30 now who was saying, I want to ask out a 16-year-old, how would, would, you, would you counsel him in any direction? Hmm. Well, I guess I'll pass on that question. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Mr. Wisnotsky, thank you so much uh, it, and for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, if people want to find out more about your work, do you have a, does your organization have a website they should take a look at? I, I have a, a website that has some biographical information. It's goodmorals, G-O-D-M-O-R-A-L-S dot O-R-G slash mw slash mw your initials got it um all right well thank you so much for your time thanks it's very nice uh, talking with you mark thank you bye-bye Bye. more than the greatest love the world has known this is the love i'll give to you alone more than the simple words I try to say I only live to love you more each day Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. One of our Jewish guests this week is a special treat, my dear, dear friend, uh, my agent, and a very talented newcomer to the literary scene after having shepherded it for so long, the author of the memoir, Lifesaving for Beginners, the amazing, or should I say, the marvelous Anne, <laughs> Anne Edelstein. Edelstein. Hello. 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 How are you? I'm fine. Nice to meet you, Anne. I've heard nice so many you, nice, Mark, know, yes. so many nice things about you from from Liel, and now and now I feel like I know you really well because I've read Life Saving for Beginners. Mm-hmm. Here's the the first and most unfair question: mm-hmm. T- Tell us the premise uh, of this book. Okay, that is a tough question. I it know. is, I mean, in a line, it is about grieving for my mother, about figuring out how to grieve for my mother. So your mother was this legendary Boston area Jewish uh, school principal. Correct. Retires after many years, kind of admired by the community. Yes. Takes a trip, the dream trip around, you know, around the world to go to the Great Barrier Reef. Correct. And then? And she drowns, which was completely from nowhere. Literally out of the blue. Literally out of the blue, into the blue and out of the blue. And so that was a shock in and of itself. Um, I mean, I guess I suppose that my mother would someday die, but I was just... Completely taken unaware. She yeah. was in her late 60s, right? She was in her late 60s. She was snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef, so obviously she was in good health. Um, and she was beginning her, quote, retirement. And um, she definitely retired. And then um, there was a lot made of the retirement. It was like, I want to retire before people tell me I've had enough. It hurt her. The way she appeared was very important to her. And she said she wanted to retire before people wanted to get rid of her. What I find so moving about the book is that you're pretty frank that your mother was a pain in the neck. Mm-hmm. Is that is that to a, me? To, to me. you? To you? Right? That, yeah. that as and I'm, we, I'm sure to others also. Yeah, you probably weren't alone. In, but right. but just some people would have described her differently. But she had a side of her that came out with some people, yes, including her daughter, right. that was tough to take. Yes. And so the grief wasn't. I don't know. I mean, I, I've never lost anyone that close to me, but I imagine that for some people, there's a kind of simplicity or purity. I loved her. She loved me. But it was complicated, right? It was complicated. A lot of the way she acted towards me was really more about her own fears and 
trying to figure out who she uh, place herself in the world. And if I was in the way of that, because she did have a lot of fears um, related to her own inability to grieve for other people um, before her, because there was a whole history of death. My mother lived in that shadow, I would say. Well, one of the things that I didn't know when I encountered this book, I mean, I I knew this was a book about grieving for your mother, um, and and I'm reading this book called Lifesaving for Beginners. I thought, this is going to be terrific. I didn't realize <laughs> there's also a book by someone whose grandfather, uncle, and brother had all killed themselves. Correct. That's a heck of a lot of suicide in one family. Exactly. And it was interesting to me, I mean, if I can, what I, what I assume you're talking about when you say that you got in the way of how she wanted to proceed was she kind of wanted not to talk about all this suicide. It seems like you would have liked to talk about it much more, like a normal person. Um, Is that right? Yes, but really the bulk of it, I didn't even know existed. Oh, that's right. That's because right. she really did not want to talk about this. Now, once I understood it, I really wanted to talk about it because it seemed like it was this hidden key. Um, to unlocking everything that you know goes on emotionally in this family. And, exactly. And, and really to understanding my mother. Um, not that she wanted to speak about it then either. And it took you a long time to come to come to the full, you know, full fruition of, of this process. Yes. I mean, I think when, when my brother committed suicide, which was in my lifetime, it, w it was the most horrific thing I could ever imagine um, at that time. <laughs> um, and I just, it was almost like I held onto it as my identity, you know, both of my kids read the book after I, once I found a publisher a bit before, and they, they really liked it, which why wouldn't they? They're sort of the heroes of the book. <laughs> um, but they both said similar things, which was, you know, I knew most of what happened in this book. I mean, I knew most of the things. I the thing that took them by surprise or that they hadn't understood was just how quiet everyone kept things. And to me, that was really... The reason to write the book. It's so interesting because, you know, you grew up partly, well, you grew up in Connecticut and and greater Boston, right? Yes, exactly. all, of, all of these, where in Connecticut were you? Were you in West Hartford? Is yeah, that, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I went to high school in Windsor, Connecticut, right, uh, right near yeah. West Hartford. I'm uh, from okay. Springfield. Yeah. I worked at Andover Summer School at Phillips Academy for mm, five years. Like I know, yeah. I know the entire geography wow, of this wild. book. Uh -huh. uh, and yeah, my wife's from New York City. I was born in New York City. I know the entire geography of this book. And so much of it made sense to me too. I mean, it's interesting because these people are obviously very deeply Jewish. I mean, your mother was a Jewish educator. But the, there is a kind of like New England steeliness and quiet to the way they did not handle grief in a uh, in a Mrs. Maisel type no. fashion, and, and you know they handled it in a very Andover type fashion. Yes. and I have to say, I mean, I loved the book, but I kind of felt like the the book that you. The book that I wanted to read that I felt, you know, there's always another book bursting underneath the skin of the sure. book that's written, of course. as you know, as a literary yes. agent. And I felt that the book, that there's more to be said about losing your brother because we are, we all expect to lose our parents. Right. And we don't expect to lose our, he's your younger brother, right? Yeah. Don't expect, I mean, I have three younger siblings and, and I mean, you, it's unthinkable. It's just unthinkable. It's huge. I mean, the, and, and I think losing a sibling is I can't say it's worse. I mean, it's worse. Of course, it's worse. I think. Well, I, well that's me. Yes, it is, and it isn't. I mean, losing your mother is like your mother brings you into the it's world. It's your anchor in the world. It, yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It, it's it, it's a force that I really I don't think I understood either. 
and and that's what I did come to understand. So tell tell us about the kind of you know the the, the emotional you know workout uh, involved in in writing this book. Were there moments in which you just had to stop because the weight was too unbearable? How how did it actually come about after you know germinating for so long? Um. It wasn't that hard. I, I mean, it was. It's hard to write a book, so it. It you know you have to kind of get your head back into that place, remember it as it was, get the language right. But it was. I I think it was actually. I sort of liked being back there again and going through some of these things, in a way that I was able to talk about it as opposed to experience it. You know, so that it was. Um, I won't say it was a relief. But it was a completion. What do you think of the the growing literature of grief? You know, Joan Didion has her book, and Megan O'Rourke had hers, and there are fifty others I'm not thinking of. But it, it, did you did you read a lot of it? Do you read a lot of it? I've read some of it. I truly the thing that I tried not to read too much of. You know, I've I've read Joan Didion. Um, I tried not to read too much about the literature of suicide. Mm. I, I don't know. I. I I find it interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like every person's story is a little bit different. Um, suicide, I felt like whenever I would read about it, I felt like that's not what it was like. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt how like so? That wasn't how I experienced it. it like, there, there's a lot of morality about it. Mm. Um, and I felt like, hey, no. You know, there is... Maybe it was because I felt like I wanted to own it as my experience, and I didn't, I didn't want any other experiences. Right. It's a hugely taboo topic, um, and I could see that that was why my mother really didn't want to talk about it. I mean, she felt like it was an embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Some of it's generational. Some of it isn't. I mean, some of it some is, of it is di- deeply ingrained human. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we began with a, with a, an unfair question. Let us let us now come to a conclusion with another unfair question. Um, considering all that you've learned by by writing this book, by revisiting these painful emotional places, um, are there any kinds of I, I, I shudder to say advice, but anything you could share with people who are maybe going through similar experiences that you could say, okay, hey, look. It took me, you know, 30 years, but <laughs> here's what I've learned about how you could begin to think about these momentous issues of losing a loved one. Just respect time. It's not like, okay, the year goes full cycle and that's it. You've done your grieving, done. So, in fact, I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, I think most of what you know, give yourself the time to just let it happen. For me, I think what actually really made me understand what was going on was living my life, you know, and um, being there with my kids, seeing what I, you know, experiencing the everyday that I thought was intruding on my ability to grieve. But in fact, it was... Turned out to be the way that you it did, was. Yeah. It was It was living life and, and enjoying it. Right. And, um, learning, learning to communicate with your kids the way your mother never learned to communicate with well, you. Well, there was that, and just like opening up, you know. I and which was really the point of the book, which was if I don't come to terms with life, then how am I going to not be my mother? Hmm. Right. You know, by by just having a mission and closing off things around it. You, you can't do that. It's not how life works, and it's not how. 
I guess it's not how grieving works. At least it wasn't for me. So. I found some of the most moving scenes of the book to be when you were explaining things to your little children. Uh-huh. I think I think I think it's a book for parents who have had to explain these things. For people who've gone through it, um, the book is life saving for beginners. We should all buy copies retail. We should Great. pay retail. Thank you. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and Edelstein, thanks for being our Jew of the week. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Your time is really strange Catch me later But can you please be late To the mailbox. To the mailbox. To the mailbox. It's going to be less fun not having Stephanie here for the letters. Always the case. Always the case. But you know what? You letter writers out there, the J Crew, picked up the slack. Uh, this week, a few letters from the voicemail line, and then uh, one that was sent in the old-fashioned way of email. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Here's our first letter. Hi, J Crew. My name is Grace from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm a undergraduate and um, I'm currently looking at eventually going to HUC and my dad and I were wondering what is your recommendations between New York, Cincinnati and Los Angeles? Okay. I think given the choice between anything and LA, the choice should always be LA. See, I agree. Why do you think that? Because I'm a normal human who likes good weather, good food, and chill people. I don't know. Are there any other reasons that you could think about? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think LA is a place that one lives. It's a place one vacations in, but the vacation can be five years long. Or, or 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 fifty or fifty. That's really <laughs> the way I feel. Like, and my friends who live in LA, they say, yeah, we don't. If they're not from there, they don't ever really feel they've settled there. But they'll do decades at a time, happy. There's something wonderful about a city governed by one single industry because everyone really has to be super nice to you at all times because no one ever really knows if you're the person they're going to meet in like yeah. pitch meeting tomorrow yeah. at the studio. I also think that Jewish life is really interesting out there. So I feel great. like there's like interesting stuff going on. Ikar, yeah, Ikar, yeah, and yeah. and and the rabbis I know who. Or at the more mainline traditional synagogues, also are just you know they're fantastic. just think, they're thinking kind of differently. They're fantastic and um, and you know it's it's like every every rabbi bio at a synagogue out there is like you know um, Ephraim Shulovitz uh, was an outward bound leader for nine years before he realized his dream of going back to rabbinic school. He enjoys surfing with his dog Chummy and that's, occasionally that's, studying Talmud right. with his triplets. At his home in Venice Beach. You know, Plus, yeah. Uh, how would you rather start today? Uh, you know, stepping on a on a carcass of a rat <laughs> while pushing three hundred people on your way to the malfunctioning subway, or going to the farmers market to Loteria to have a breakfast taco and then a donut at Bob's Donuts? Like Completely. normal life. So the point is, L.A., L.A., L.A. Always L.A. All right. To the next question. Hey, unorthodox gang. Um, this is David calling from the D.C. area. So. My question is, the whole obsession with Jewish continuity, I really feel like it alienates uh, Jewish gay men. 
obviously we, and I say we because I'm a Jewish gay man, uh, can't reproduce with our same gendered partner. And of course, according to Halakha, Judaism is bestowed by the mother to her children. So even if we produce children with our Jewish sperm, if you will, in a non-traditional situation, we still face the rejection of our kids in conservative and orthodox settings. So my thing is, if Jewish continuity is so important, what role do Jewish gay men play when we can't reproduce? Leah Leibowitz, David is concerned that all this talk of continuity, which we have indulged in on this show, alienates the JGM, the Jewish gay man. What do you say to him? Uh, you know, what I kind of want to say to David, uh, two things. First of all, brother, really, we, we, we deeply and dearly feel, uh, feel your, your pain and your frustration because I, I can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be a part of a community that, you know, hinges so heavily on something that you feel sort of by design left out of. But at the, but at the same time, I think that there are increasing uh, movements or increasing commitments um, to the notion of continuity being more about commitment than about bloodlines. Let me let me let me put this in a very crass way. If you're willing to pay the day school tuition, <laughs> if you're willing to join us there in the trenches, you're you're in. You know, you're part of the people. So I would say uh, it's a it's a long uphill battle. It's about the sacrifices you're willing to make. Some of them will be financial. Some of them will be emotional. Some of them will be you know knowing that you have to fight within your community for this kind of long overdue reformation. But it's it's so so essential. And I I suppose our kind of wake up call here is to do whatever we can to to embrace not just, you know, people like David, but also, you know, single parents. Absolutely. Uh, and anyone who doesn't conform to any non-parents, traditional... Non-parents, yeah. Yeah. And I also want to say that I, I completely agree. I think Non-parents, that, those magical creatures <laughs> non- I, I keep hearing about. <laughs> I've never met one. Yeah. But, uh, but I also want to say that when we talk about continuity, we have to be talking about things other than producing biological children. Uh, we also have to be talking about who's who's showing up. I mean, it's not just paying the, oh, the I, tuition. It's like 100% who's agree. turning out to to make a minion. Who's doing the hevra kadisha and mm-hmm. sitting with the people who have died. Who's delivering? Who's studying? Who's studying? Who's being a study partner? Who's delivering meals? Who's working as a as a as a right. camp counselor or a Torah tutor or a teacher? Or it's like right. There's something so weird about like <laughs> it's really important for me that my kids be Jewish. I don't observe anything and I know nothing. Right. But maybe my kids will. Right. I mean, it's up to you now. It's like the person who quietly, without asking for recognition, visits people in a hospital on Shabbat evening and brings them a little mini challah, which is the kind of thing that's done throughout the country and the world Mm -hmm. by people who never ask for credit and who, by the way, visit the Gentiles there as well. But I'm saying like people whose commitment to their Jewish community is who needs me in an in an invisible moment like that. That's right. That's continuity. It's a sense of actual community. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes the world's worst relay race. I'm going to run as slow as I can. <laughs> then I'm going to give you the baton and then it's your problem. And then it's your problem. Then I take, win the race. Then I'm going to shuffle off. Yeah. Right. So, so we're with you there. Let's I keep... didn't train for this <laughs> at all. But here's the baton. Maybe you can run. But My only skill is having sex. That's right. And it'll I'll hand the baton off to the product. So, so David, uh, lead us. Yeah. We need you, man. We, we, You're it. We absolutely That's it. need you. You're appointed. New leader of the Jewish people. Uh, one more letter from the voicemail. Hi, it's Gabriel Savitt Woods. I'm out in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm listening to the most recent episode out walking my dog. I literally had to stop and pause it after the Mrs. Maisel conversation because you're missing the point. The point is this. It's fine if they mess up some details about Talasim on Friday night 
as long as it's not a show predicated on Jewish stereotypes, which it is, right? Like, the entire point of the show is, oh, we live amongst, you know, the first generation of immigrant Jews on the Upper West Side. This is a picture of a community, and the picture of the community has them all out at work on Yom Kippur. Listen, I don't care how liberal you are as a Jew. If you're first generation or an immigrant at that time, Moshe is not going to be running his Shmata trade factory on Yom Kippur, or else, you know, he'd be ostracized. No one would do business with him. Look, fine. Whatever. We're at a point where plenty of Jews in the entertainment industry, the representation issue, like, you can go one way or the other. That's fine. If they mess up some details about Frumkite on an episode that happens to have Jews in it, look, not everyone can know everything about Jews. But if it's a show about Jews in which non-Jews are playing Jews and they get Judaism really wrong, I think that's a problem. I don't know. Maybe I'm just crazy. All right. Love you guys. Bye. I have to say, I I can't argue with anything this man says. This man is so robust. I imagine him with like a wooden walking stick and a satchel filled with like gunpowder climbing. Shep- know, the, shepherding. The Ozarks. Yeah, he's shepherding sheep. He up is. So right. Gabriel, Gabriel Savid Woods, whom I once referred to on the Facebook group as Gabriel instead of Gabriel. Oh, no, 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 no. And he, he came for me. He's not Gabriel. He's not he Gabriel. He's Gabriel like the angel. And Gabriel Savid Woods. Yeah. Look, um, I think I agree with you mostly. I think, but but here's the important point: that's how you leave a voicemail. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's right. You leave a. You're walking your dog. You've got your shepherd's staff. You're on a mountain somewhere. You, you're listening to our episode in your ears, and you say, "I'm going to call those people and tell them how it is." You know, the only thing really to do here is for season two of Mrs. Maisel <laughs> to really go deep. You know, that's that's when we have you know Mrs. Maisel being like, "I, I can't do stand up tonight, Susie. Like it's Tani Sester. It's, it's Tani Sester. Like, I can't." <laughs> <laughs> on some Gedalia, like I would never. I, I, how can I do without a few drinks in me? That's right. right. Uh, listen, Lenny Bruce being like, Hoshana Raba, <laughs> Goyish. <laughs> Tani Sester, crazy Goyish. Crazy, crazy Goyish. <laughs> uh, all right, and now to the old fashioned creaky modality of email. We should have like a, a banjo playing <laughs> in the background. <laughs> no, we need a typewriter. No, a clicky clacky typewriter here. Ah, you know, it is the greatest. The way a Remington Quiet Writer helps stimulate interest in the young people, brings out the best in them. You know something? The minute you get your hands on this wonderful portable, you find yourself with an urge to express yourself. This letter from Bjorn with a slash through the O, Gabrielson. He writes... Bjorn Gabrielson. First of all, Bjorn Gabrielson, is he Jewish? Is he... Is he Icelandic? Like he's he's the the rabbi of Reykjavik. Is he? He's the Reykjavik rabbi. Oh no, I don't know. But Who knows? I'm, I'm imagining him sitting on a on a you know. Liel, he writes, and a in a shul made of ice, I mean, <laughs> listening to Bjork chant Kol Nidre. You know, this is an important <laughs> moment. Bjorn writes, Liel is right about Iceland making immigrants choose Icelandic names. They made an exception for the pianist Vladimir Ashkenazi, though, who defected from the Soviet Union while in Reykjavik which in turn led immigrants, all with names like Olsen and Bjornsson, to suggest that they might be allowed to change their name to the now-certified Icelandic Ashkenazi. Yours truly, Bjorn Gabrielsson. So apparently, if you move to Iceland, you either have to become an Olsen or Bjornsson, or if you're a world-famous pianist... You could, you could keep Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi. The question is, are we big enough deals that we could keep Oppenheimer and Leibowitz? Uh, I think our lovely listeners uh, in, in the frozen parts of the world should answer that. If we... <laughs> by the way, this is an offer. Okay. If we emigrate, if we do this show live from Iceland, would you let us still be 
Leibowitz, Oppenheimer, and Butnik. Right. And do they? I think Butnik. I think Butnik in particular <laughs> would enliven you know the Icelandic. It's like, oh, I, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Bjork so, Butnik would be an amazing Bjork name. Bjork Butnik. Right. Well, and of course Stephanie can make that happen if That's she right. and Ben allow their kids right. to keep her last to take her last name. The twins, and, Bjork and Bjorn. Bjork and Butnik. 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 Uh, so listen. So many ways to reach us. You can call us on the listener Not line. Not to talk about Olaf Oppenheimer. <laughs> Olaf Oppenheimer or Lars Leibowitz. Lars Leibowitz. <laughs> you can call us. You can write to us. You can also join us in the Facebook group and, and comment there. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your free podcasts. If you want to send a letter by Clicky Clacky Typewriter, unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-Israel-Woodstock. One of our Jews of the Week this week is Jeffrey Masters. He is the host of the podcast LGBTQ&A, in which he interviews LGBTQ folks and gets beyond the simple stories, gets beyond the surface stories of their transition and their coming out and goes deeper, dives deeper, gets to know their defining moments, their accomplishments, how they got where they are today. The podcast is on iTunes and it's on Panoply and we totally recommend it. Stephanie recently visited Jeffrey in his studio in Los Angeles. And as you can hear from this conversation with him, he is a terrific talker and a soulful guy. Have a listen. Yeah, thank you. We're actually in your studio. So is it weird to be on the opposite side of where you normally are? Um, it's weird because I'm sitting in my same seat, but I have no questions prepared. You have no questions prepared <laughs> and you're like not really allowed to ask. No, you actually can ask questions, but yeah, it's weird to be, to give up that power, right? Yeah. So let's talk about your show because it's it's a hit. The New York Times recommended it. BuzzFeed had it as its number two um, podcast recommendation. The Advocate called you an overnight success. Which is all really exciting. Yeah, I promise it's not an overnight. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what kind of I get the feeling. Um, Just to clear no one, things up. Yeah, but no one actually is an overnight success. It actually takes a lot of work too, especially with the podcast. So tell us a little bit of how the show came to be, some of your favorite guests, some of the conversations that you've had. So it came to be because I have a, the same argument that many, many queer people have, which is that all of our major outlets focus primarily on white gay men. And they've had that argument for a while, and yet nothing's really changed. And so um, I'm sick of seeing things that are for the LGBTQ community when really they're just for the G. And I wanted to showcase more of our stories as well. And I just love podcasts as a medium. And it's kind of amazing that a show like this didn't exist. Because what am I doing? I'm interviewing LGBTQ people, right? That's not a, they, it's not like, like not a new idea. Concept. But no, but you do it really well. And you do, you do it with a diverse group of people. So... Let, can we start from the beginning yeah. and just do some terminology for some of our listeners who I think a lot of times want to say the right thing and want to use the right terms, but are scared to because they actually don't know if something's offensive or if you can only say something if you're part of a community. Um, it's interesting. So what about the word queer or gender queer? Yeah. Um, you spoke with Asia Kate Dillon, who's the actress from, um, actor, sorry. You're okay. Um, from Billions and Orange is the New Black. And, and in that interview, they said, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say queer, basically. And I think a lot of people, even someone who identifies as gender non-binary, that was what the episode was about, sort of not being sure whether we can say queer. I mean, is that something that 
someone who isn't queer can say? Are you uncomfortable if someone else says that? Or is it just a good, useful term? Um, It is a wonderful, useful term that is Mm all-encompassing. And I think that we are slowly pointing ourselves towards the word queer because of how um, inclusive it is. For a while, it was derogatory. Um, we've got past that quite a bit. Um, I think it's the older generations are now hurt by that, or the ones who are hurt. But, um, uh, and I, and again, I don't want to negate their feelings because it was a horrible word. Like, um, and you know, you can't call me a faggot. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's yet. not one of the letters. <laughs> yeah. That's, there's not an F in there. Um, like it's, you know, it's one of those words, like we'll joke around with my friends, like, and you say that, but like, if someone says it to me, like, like the conversation stops, but, um, and so going back to like the older generation not being okay with the word queer, they're slowly becoming okay with it. And I will say that the vast majority of LGBTQ people are cool with the word queer. And so um, it's kind of like the majority wins. And that's where the future is going. And yeah, it's, it's, with it's that interesting because I imagine the older generation, you have people who were had that word hurled at them are now seeing a younger generation who are embracing that, that term. And I think that happens a lot of the time with language. You know, we were a Jewish podcast. Obviously we've talked about, you know, the word Jew, which can be sort of a slur in a way, but it's also an identity. Like someone says, you're a real Jew. It's like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? So I think there's a way in which, you know, Mark, my co-host wants to bring back Jewess and he wants Jewish women to call themselves Jewess, Jewess, Jewesses. And I'm just like, that makes me cringe. Like I, and then there are young women who are like, I'm a proud Jewess. And it's, some people are like, it's how you pronounce it. But to me, I think language is so, so fraught, but also so, so potentially useful, I think, yeah. in all these ways. I, I mean, that makes me cringe because like of the gendering of it. Yeah. I think that as a society, we're moving away yes. from that. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because when I went to Israel for birthright, <laughs> yes. shout out, I, um, uh, first of all, let's backtrack and say yeah. that there is a gay birth rate trip, and I'm so mad I did not know about it. So Which, if you're listening, there it exists, okay. and if you're queer, join it. Yes. Can you imagine traveling? There's, like, there's a wider bridge, with, I think, which I think also takes... I think that's one. Maybe that's the trip you're talking about. I don't know, but they're oh. always amazing programs. Well, I know that like I went on like the university birthright uh-huh. one, and then there was just like a like purely like queer that's one, amazing. and I was like, I cannot imagine like traveling <laughs> with like forty queer people on this bus. <laughs> um, it sounds like trouble, and I like trouble. Okay, just kidding. Um, so birthright. So when I'm in Israel, I realize that in America, Jews and lawyers are like, are Jewish, but in Israel, Jews and lawyers are Jewish, as well as bus drivers and waiters and busboys and uh, custodians, and in my experience of Israel was that there was not a bad Jew or a good Jew. There was just Jews. Whereas in America, we kind of have these standards. And I think that's a really amazing way to also think about the queer community is that there's no bad or good queers. You're just queer. Well, that reminds me of an interview you did with Ross Matthews, who sort of became known as the on-screen intern on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and then it went on to have his his own show and... He said something really fascinating to you, which was basically that, you know, he was sort of very flamboyant on the show and they were sort of, Jay would sort of make fun of him a little bit. He sort of was your stereotypical, in some ways, over the top gay man. That's what he seemed to be portraying. And he said that he got hate mail after he appeared on the show and that it was mostly from gay people who are basically like, we don't want you representing us. Yes. And to me, that's something that's really fascinating about your show is that you don't shy away from sort of like the intra- LGBTQ interqueer drama, right? The tension between different types of people and how they should be, how they feel they should be represented. 
it sort of reminds me that the people who are toughest on Jews are other Jews, right? It's like the idea, like for us, we have like Shonda for Degoyim, right? Like the idea, like you don't want to act badly because you don't want the Gentiles to to see a Jew behaving badly. But of course. We sort of, it's, it's self-imposed. I don't mean to make, I don't mean to sort of lump these two. I'm just so, so interesting as two groups of two minorities, right? Like there, there are ways in which the way we deal with things that embarrass, you know, things that we don't think will look good to the outside world, we're often toughest on ourselves in yeah. a weird way. No, I completely agree. We're probably, exactly. I, I mean, I'm, probably as a community, we're too critical of uh, like our people who represent us on screen. But like, why shouldn't we be in a way? Because um, we are not just this like monolith and we're often represented that way on screen. And so, you know, like Will and Grace was this like, a cultural milestone. And it's like, well, are you like a Will or a Jack? <laughs> and it's like, I'm like neither and both. And like, where does that leave me? <laughs> and so we've only now started to see more complex representa- uh, representations of ourselves on screen. And that helps other people to uh, understand us more. Because to be completely honest, when I go to a wedding and there's a single woman there and she like sees that I'm gay and she tells me, oh, you're my, my new best, best friend. friend. You have to spend the entire night with me. It makes me think, well, why? Because she has this like idea in her head of exactly. she needs like a gay best she friend wants a jack. night. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me wow. feel like a commodity when it's like, well, actually, you don't know me at all. <laughs> and also, do I have a say in this? Yeah. <laughs> you're gay and fun and we're going to have a great time. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, the thing is, if there's one gay person on TV, then everyone gets really upset, right? If, if that person doesn't represent Correct. them. And, but if there are a number of gay characters on TV, then it actually, it lessens the pressure on each person, right? And, and public figures as well, too, right? To be, that they could be their own person. Yeah. So if, if our listeners want to start somewhere, what are some of the interviews that you'd recommend or some of your favorite, favorite guests that you've had Ooh. on? Um, some of my favorites are the historical people. So like Jennifer Finney Boylan is this trans activist and a writer. And um, I mean, I say trans activist just because when she was coming um, about, um, if you were a trans person in the public, you kind of were by default an activist. Mm-hmm. So she was on, on the Oprah show 15 years ago wow. because she wrote this book called uh, She's Not There. And um she kind of introduced this trans person to the American public. And she was just this college professor who also was a writer and married. And for so long, representation of trans people encompassed sex workers. And for people just to see this like, quote unquote, normal trans person, it was radical. And Mm. for such a massive audience on the Oprah show too. um, It's also fascinating looking back on her interview with Oprah because Oprah, you know, asks her like what's in her pants and things like that. And yeah. nowadays we just know that that's not how that flies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jennifer is amazing also because she's such a strong voice in our community. And we talked about like the future of the trans movement. So in, um, um, compared to marriage equality, that really took off when we rebranded it as being about love. Because love is love. Yeah. If you like, who would go against that? Exactly. But it's <laughs> a good slogan. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was brilliant. Um, we don't yet have that for the trans community. Gender identity means jack shit to quite a few people. No, excuse me. Not quite a few people. The vast majority. <laughs> we, we, uh, we need better branding and PR. And, um, so we talked about that with Jennifer Finney Boyland and I respect like the shit out of her. So I was so happy like just to be able to talk to her. And then, um, inside scoop, I was so, I wanted to keep talking to her. So I actually like drove her home to her hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, please talk to me. Uh, be my friend. And that was cool because I've also read her work for years. 
uh, other favorites of mine, Asia Kate Dillon, uh, they are probably the most high profile non-binary person right now. And, and we were talking about vocabulary earlier in this interview. Um, Asia is non-binary and I've also identifies as like gender queer and also, um, like of my other like non-binary friends identify as gender fluid. There's many synonyms to describe the single experience. Um, probably publicly, everyone would use the word non-binary, but there's gender fluid, gender queer, um, agender. There's many different words because for so long we didn't have the proper vocab to describe experiences. And so everyone just kind of like picked the word that best described them. And so, um, I don't, uh, that can like trip people up sometimes. I still have trouble with pronouns. Like I consider myself a very evolved, very compassionate, very educated person and and interested in these issues, but calling someone they is still hard for me. And just sort of, you know, I reference Asia K. Dillon. I said actress, which is probably not the right word. They prefer actor. Actor, which probably most women I actually think prefer. Not that, not that they, you know, it's, it's hard to, I get tripped up a little bit. Um, and what I will say is uh, one of my best friends is non-binary, Jacob Tobiah. Uh, they have a book coming out. Hey. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, it's called Sissy. It's great. Okay. They, oh, C-I-S-S-Y? Um, oh, wait, that's very funny, but no, just S-I-S-S-Y. Um, and I think they describe it the best because they say, don't treat us with kid gloves. So don't you know be afraid to be like, oh, Asia they are a person, you know, just be like they, and if you mess the pronoun, I will apologize and then keep going. Um, don't make it a big deal. So am I and, part of the problem? Cause I'm just like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to offend you. So I'm going to say, I'm going to act weird when I say it. You, so you're not, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make you feel bad, but an issue I have with my friends who are journalists are that they are, and that's an issue that we have as community have to, um, mess with because my friends who are journalists are afraid to make mistakes and so they do not cover us as a people and that is a big problem if people are afraid to write about us and interview us do you think that has to do with sort of like the outrage culture of the internet now where it's like if you are a journalist and you misidentify someone then all of a sudden you are a bigoted homophobic person somehow you sort of become cast as that absolutely and the court of public opinion aka twitter only allows her a certain amount of space Mm -hmm. and it doesn't allow her nuance and that's why i love the podcast medium because uh in 40 minutes of talking you get to know somebody Mm -hmm. and if you do mess up which i have done before um you can talk about the mess up so like when you called asia an actress um like, I don't want you to, like, be embarrassed. I like, did. It. I feel that. like I tried. To, I even just, like, stumbled then. And I was just like, ah. That's okay. Yeah, I don't want you to be, like, embarrassed and, like, cut that for Yeah, I was, I was thinking, I was like, I hope no one can cut <laughs> that part out. Yeah, so, but I, but because, I will leave it in. <laughs> yeah, I think you should because um, hearing those mistakes, like, you just say, like, oh, okay, um, uh, like, apologize in the moment and then move on and then don't beat yourself up over it. I've had issues, too. or Not issues. I've had people, like, text me after um, like conversations be like, hey, I realized I said this. I'm so sorry. And uh, I had to respond with, like, I don't even remember that. But, like, thanks for apologizing. And I hope you weren't beating yourself up the entire time you're together. So just, like, in the words of Jacob, don't treat people with kid gloves. We're all adults and intelligent. And I drastically strive every episode to treat my audience of listeners as intelligent people. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, so Jeffrey, 
how what how do listener how do our listeners listen to your show how do we follow you how do we see you how do we read you yeah because you're 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 everywhere wow thank you so much how do we find you um yeah so um they can find the show on itunes or wherever they prefer it's called lgbtq a Uh, it's a great clever name i know thank you hi i came up with it in dream i literally woke up one morning and was like i have the name um and i had some bad names before i was gonna call it like parade or pride rock um which would not be the New York Times. Okay, so um, LGBTQ&A is the podcast. And then I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1 and like everywhere else too. Yeah. All right, JeffMasters1. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, this has been so fun. Yeah, it's so much fun. Thanks. That was our very own Stephanie Butnick in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago talking with Jeffrey Masters, host of the podcast LGBTQ&A, which is available on iTunes and on Panoply and wherever you get your podcasts for free. And we recommend it heartily. Uh, Mazel tovs, Stephanie, uh, rejoining us from the slopes. What do you have for Mazel tov? I'm, I'm up right now. Okay. You're, you're having a hot cocoa. Is there creme de menthe in it? I don't even know what that is, but it sounds fancy. You want it. You want some. What's your mazel tov this week? I just have a shout out to the people in the face. I mean, our Facebook group is just amazing and it like is, it's giving me life. Um, and there are a lot of people who have like parsed, who sort of like shouted me out, um, for like specific in, in, um, conversations we've had recently. And so I just wanted to say like, thank you for the support. And, and it means a lot. That's nice. Leo. So because Stephanie was even lovelier than usual, I have to be even a bigger asshole than usual (laughs) and uh, wish uh, my beloved Mahmoud Abbas much mazel tov on beginning just uh, two days ago, year 13 of his four-year term. And, you know, he's really done a lot in the ways of, like, you know, destroying the free press and imprisoning, um, you know, people and stealing a lot of money and paying for terror. And, you know, Mahmoud, this is definitely the way uh, your people want you to go. That was so sincere. It is. That was so sincere. Uh, I have two mazel tovs this week. First of all, uh, a friend from Shul, uh, Eva Landau-Schultz, had a baby. So mazel tov uh, to her. Uh, and and her husband and a daughter and the whole the whole family there. But also, I want to give a it's never too early to start listening to our show. That's right. <laughs> Let's get them. In fact, forget the baby Mozart. If you have a newborn or a toddler, there you put go. Put them in front of an Orthodox. They would be very very wise. They'll learn Jewish very quickly. Com- completely. That's right. Um, They'll be then- ready for their bar mitzvah by the time they're three. <laughs> My other Mazel Tov is to Mike Joyce. Uh, Mike is a major graphic designer. He does a lot of record covers. His uh, firm is called Stereotype Design. But the Facebook group helped me find him because I was curious who designed the most amazing bit of Jewish graphic design I've ever seen, which is a Star of David nested inside the recycling triangle that you all know that is on every recycling thing in the world. And I have a T-shirt that I was sent years ago as free swag for something from the Foundation for Jewish Summer Camping. Uh, and it was it had this picture on it, and I always wondered who did the Star of David inside the recycling because it was the, the simplicity of it, the beauty of it. And somebody on the Facebook group said, "Oh, I worked for the Foundation for Jewish Camp, and I remember who that was, and it was Mike Joyce." And I emailed Mike, and he actually had an old PDF of it. The shirt is apparently now sold out; you can't get it anymore. Uh, it's worth eight thousand dollars on eBay. Um, but but Mike Joyce, you know, do do some more for the Jews because because it was it was pretty tight. And, and our producer, Shira Talishkin, has a mazel tov this week. Um, 
Hey guys, it's so fun to be in the studio. Hi, Sherry. I wanted to give a huge mazel tov and shout out to my sister, Naomi, and her beloved, beloved fiance, Ben, who have just gotten engaged and they live all the way in Australia and it's very sad. But um, I know Ben is a huge fan of the show and so is my sister and um, he has just survived two weeks of my family and cooking Shabbos dinner both weeks. And, and making you bagels, which he does now. <laughs> making bagels like he's done on the show, uh, coming to shul with us to Ramad Arah, where he sat through all of Shacharis with my dad and his all his group of rabbi cronies and passed with flying colors, went to the Jewish home with my mom and spent four hours visiting old people and singing Jewish songs to them. And Ben gets all the colors and we are so excited. And Mazel Tov, so, you guys are the best. Mazel Tov to Naomi and Ben, but he's he is converting to Judaism? Ben is from Manjama, a town of like 5,000 people and I'm not his his grandmother did ask Naomi if the Jews killed Jesus but they are very lovely said, and welcoming. I hope you said yeah secrets out guys but is he becoming and a- he is totally becoming Jewish and he is um, he he's been asking me all these questions about Ben Seer he's, he's in the middle of um, these lecture series at the Rabbi Gate we went to West Side Judaica together to buy oh, all wow. these new books that he needed and that he has he's what, in did, the, what did you buy he's in the uh, okay so he got one of Barry so we had Barry Holtz on the show when he had his book about Rabbi Akiva and he got one of Barry Holtz's books about the Bible he got he updated his Alan Dershowitz collection <laughs> oh um, god we got him uh, he needed a new Tanakh so we got him um, right a much shorter one yeah <laughs> <laughs> only one part for those who don't know that's the Bible in Hebrew we got him the Bible and um, he has this amazing Australian accent and he's um, learning more about Judaism than so most of I us. just have to say like I love the idea of this guy from this small town where the the koala bears outnumber the humans by a lot I, I don't know if that's so, true so we imagine. we're just gonna traffic in Australian stereotypes and he meets this beautiful and charming and brilliant woman Naomi I've met we've met your sister terrific absolutely understandable why he'd fall in love and want to marry her and then she's like wait a second there's this ancient tradition you don't know anyone who practices it but you've got to spend a few years becoming this by the way uh, my family's really religious by the way my father's one of the people who actually has written the books that teach everyone how to do this by the way you have to come join this family and learn like it's it's as but what better family to like <laughs> well, well the rabbi who's converting him first off has banned my parents from being too active in the process because they're being very nosy and he's also he said to Ben he's like you didn't join like a starter Jewish family that's right. <laughs> Like, you know, Ben's first time he's in New York, he's, he's first time he's in the States, he comes to New York. It's a Friday night dinner. If you guys, oh, I should have you guys all for Friday night dinner. We do a million rituals. And we also read the entire Torah portion every night out loud after dinner for like three hours in our living room. This is like, oh, you're interested in baseball. Okay, well, these are the Yankees. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> but on the pinstripes, you're going to fit right in. No, but like actually, and my mom just like is the most lovely human I've ever met and has no, so she's just like wants everyone to join in from the get go. So, you know, it's like, here's your keeper repeat after me here's the bracha like right not a starter jewish family not a starter jewish family and ben's not a starter guy so keep uh repeat after me we'll talk about your penis later (laughs) for now just have you know throw some kugel on the on the on the barbie (laughs) unorthodox is brought to you by tablet magazine on the web at tabletmag.com write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com follow stephanie on instagram at sputnik Join our Facebook group on Facebook. Our show is produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin with help from Julia Frakes. I'm going to say it one last time, people. Alyssa Goldstein is sadly leaving us. So if you want to apply for her job, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Jessica Kate Meyer. We recorded Argo Studios, the original shithole country, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Work. 
Shalom, friends.